Hello and welcome to the Lend Hoping Nothing podcast. I'm Michael Humphreys and I'm happy to be talking to you today. This is episode 9 and today we're going to be talking about the real economy and the financial economy. I've become kind of interested in this because I've heard a lot of various discussion about it and generally it seems that people are opposed to the financial economy. And so just the first kind of thing to try to get out of the way is to try to distinguish between the real economy and the the financial or finance economy. And I I don't know that there's a good distinction between the two because they are quite intermingled. But generally, the real economy is seen as that part of the economy that generates real goods. So you can think of uh, manufacturing and, and other sorts of things that are actually creating goods. Whereas the the financial economy is talked about as more like services, um, and these are the people who have the money. And so I kind of wanted to, to talk about this because it seems in, in general that there's a very negative view of the financial economy those people who have money and are investing it and bringing capital into the system. And particularly in the sense of thinking about how the financial economy actually supports the real economy and then discuss also some ways that there are problems. So there, there's three big things that I want to discuss. So the first one is actual finance or, or credit for real companies or real the real economy. The second is going to be liquidity. And, and then the third is going to be risk management. Now, I think the first one, which is, you know, actual financing, whether that is, you know, getting a uh, ownership claim or, you know, some sort of interest in a company versus more of a debt claim in a company. Now, kind of looking back at the, the medieval period, we can especially look at the, the societas, which was this, um, this real, it was a partnership. And so there was involved, you know, sometimes a financing arrangement. So um, Michael uh, Poston, in his book, um, which I think is really just a collection of his uh, published articles, discusses this, and he argues that there were a few different ways in which the societas was actually uh, implemented. So one, it was used as kind of a an agreement for hire. So you would actually hire someone to take your goods to market and sell them, and you would pay them a fixed wage. The second was you actually... Uh, went into this co-partnership where you would uh, provide some goods to a merchant and that merchant would then go and and sale and, um, you know, sell them, you know, maybe take them to the Holy Land and, and sell those goods. Or a common one was taking wool from England and selling it in Italy. Uh, the other one, though, was more of a specifically financing arrangement. And he talked about how there were instances in which a um, 
a person who had some capital, some wealth, would actually invest that into an established merchant. And so he got that sort of a financing arrangement. So he kind of let that merchant do his business with that capital. And so that is a way that um, the even now the finance financial economy uh, helps the the real economy because the the merchant or the artisan or whoever can then take that money to generate more goods. And we can see this in our own times, particularly with um, stock investments, with uh, specifically the IPOs. And so you're actually giving the money to the company, and that allows them to take that capital and then run with it to develop the company. In addition to IPOs, sometimes there are also follow-on offerings. So they will sell additional shares after that initial public offering. And so that's another way to to raise even more capital. So a second way that we see in the Middle Ages of this kind of financing, it was less specifically for the business, but it was a particular kind of credit arrangement. And that was the census contract. And I've talked about this a couple of times in uh, in previous episodes. And the idea here was that in the census contract, the, the purchaser of the census is purchasing a, uh, a property interest in some sort of fruitful uh, enterprise, whether it be a farm, uh, whether it be, uh, you know, housing or, or an actual business. Now, this wasn't necessarily tied to the business that the money had to go into the business. So, for example, people who sold a census contract would sometimes use that money to go on pilgrimage. Sometimes it was used to pay off usurious debts uh, or or for other things. Sometimes it would go into these, these other operations. But that was another way in which this sort of census contract could provide for the real economy because it allows that person to get money now to buy the things that he needs. The way that we see this now is uh, in bond issuance. And so um, we see big and large bonds put out onto the market. Uh, typically the smallest I've seen are a thousand dollars, but you know, you can get millions of dollars of of bond issuance and so that money goes to the business as a as a as more of a credit or debt obligation rather than this kind of ownership interest and so that provides funds for the company to then uh, you know grow their business increase production or or whatever so that that also helps um produce more things in the real economy as well. So those are kind of some of the the direct uh, financing methods. Um, the next one that I want to kind of discuss is related to liquidity. And I feel like people uh, don't quite appreciate um, the importance of liquidity. So uh, if you have a, a subscription to uh, New Polities magazine, uh, Dr. Thomas Stork uh, had this essay 
where he he's discussing Centesimus Annus, Speculation, Investment, and the Common Good is the title. And one of the things he discusses in here is, is speculation. And he talks about uh, a corn speculator uh, on page 41, if you, if you have the issue. And one of the things that really struck me here is that, uh, you know, he's very much sees John Paul as condemning the speculator, someone who buys low in order to sell high, which is what he, he talks about this uh, corn speculator doing. You know, I disagree with that, and you you probably you can see that if you read my article. But the thing that that really kind of caught my attention in this um, was, so the speculators are in a position to hold back part of the supply and sell when the price has risen. If it is legitimate to do so in order to better cover the costs of raising the corn, it seems that it is the farmer who should profit, not the speculator who performs no useful function in the economy. So that that is a an extremely questionable claim. Because the problem with that is, well, if the farmer could, why would he not wait until he uh, could get a better price. And part of the answer typically here is that liquidity has uh, a real value. So the fact that he can sell his goods now is important because that means he doesn't have to wait to get that cash because he's got bills to pay now. So he has uh, farm workers, maybe he has a mortgage, Maybe he has to pay for equipment and fuel and so forth. So being able to get that money now, having that liquidity, is a good thing. That's valuable for him. And the the speculator in this case, you know, does uh, provide that opportunity to him to be able to, um, you know, get that liquidity now. <clears throat> So uh, in medieval times, and we see this today as well, one of the things we, we see uh, was a, a big, a big advantage was the formation of these kind of credit sales. And the credit sale was essentially, um, and this happened a lot within the wool, wool markets uh, or wool industry in England, was that the, the actual wool producers would sell their their goods on credit uh, to a merchant who would then go sell it in in Italy and come back and then you know um, pay that pay that price that they had sold on credit and so this is actually a really good this is actually valuable for uh, the wool market because they can keep moving their their product and so they, they can keep moving it forward without having to store that that product and so this kind of financial arrangement where they have this sort of debt contract is actually very valuable uh, because they don't have to take all the risks of holding the good and trying to find some seller who has the capital right now and it's also good for the merchant because he is then able to, you know, not have to raise the capital to pay for it right now, but he can take it on credit, go sell it, and then 
pay off that debt and keep keep the profit. So this kind of financial arrangement is, is also very valuable, kind of similar to the, the, the speculator that uh, Dr. Stork dislikes. So in addition to this, uh, we have the whole secondary markets. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of dispute about around this, but that sort of liquidity is very important. So those people who provide those, uh, you know, buy into those uh, initial public offerings or the initial issuance of bond contracts are able to get out of them at some point. So there's all sorts of reasons that those type of people might want that liquidity that they can exchange that stuff for cash because maybe expenses come up. Maybe there's another investment they want to move into. You know, there's a hundred different things. And these things can lead to for further development or further uh, support of the real economy because, you know, I there, because there's a secondary market, because there's that, that liquidity, you know, I can pay my other bills, I can do other things with it. And then because of that, you know, that's supporting the second, the, um, um, the real economy, because then I'm able to buy those, those goods, um, that I need now. Another kind of thing related to this liquidity is other types of, um, credit contracts. And so, you know, given the focus of my show, I'm assuming non-usurous mortgages in this case. But there is the case of the um, mortgage-backed securities, which is one of the, the interesting ones. And so the problem that a company might have or a bank might have in sort of a local region is that they, they may not have the capital in that bank to finance different uh, companies or, or house purchases. So how, do, how can they get around this? So they can put up the contract, but then they can sell it to a, a, um, a, a larger, more national bank. And so then the capital from that larger bank essentially moves into that local region. And what the mortgage-backed security does is it allows an even broader base of capital where you have investors who are looking to invest in these mortgages for the interest and principal payments. And so then they're able to uh, put forward their capital. And so their capital will go into these mortgage-backed securities, which will then effectively go into these other banks, which will help the kind of liquidity of credit through the market, which then allows, you know, people to buy houses and companies to get lines of credit. Uh, not only that they have that capital available to them, but the more liquid, the more, the less friction there is in, in those transactions, the lower the interest rates are going to be. So it actually not only helps them get capital, but helps reduce their cost of capital. And so th this is another way that uh, these type of 
financial arrangements can help the real economy. Uh, so that that's kind of the liquidity perspective. And there's more, more to talk about uh, beyond that. But the third thing that I want to mention is sort of risk management. So uh, one of the big things is going to be, uh, like, for example, futures contracts. So a futures contract um, allows a company to kind of set the price that they're going to buy a commodity for ahead of time. And so, for example, one of the classic examples is McDonald's has to buy French has to buy potatoes in order to make their French fries. Now, for whatever reason, the the potato market from year to year might go up, down, left, right, and center for any number of reasons. But having these sorts of contracts allows for um, companies like McDonald's to kind of smooth out their earnings so they don't risk having one year of really high profits and then the next year having a bunch of losses just because of the way the potato market moved in those years. And so by using these futures contracts or forward contracts, they're able to kind of set a price and be able to uh, manage better their their earnings, which then allows them to better manage their company and better provide real goods. And this this goes more broadly. You can think about this as you know in steel and copper and uh, all sorts of of different goods that for manufacturing. The other side of this is going to be risk management around you know things like uh, what are called options which allow you to um, calls and puts, which are different ways of, of protecting um, your assets against changes in, in the market. So, uh, you know, if the market goes down, you can buy a put and it will cover that potential loss and you pay for that. Um, and then if you're looking for some upward exposure, um, you can also have a call, which which does uh, a similar thing, but with uh, upward movements as well. Um, and so this can also help manage a company's uh, earnings, which helps them be more stable um, in their profits and able to produce goods uh, more reliably over time. The next thing is going to be things like life insurance, uh, annuities and property insurance. So obviously when you know someone dies that has a huge impact on the family and so having life insurance is a way of helping to provide people so that they can continue to take care of themselves and can continue to take care of that that family which ultimately means that they're able to get the goods that they still need and that is going to continue to support the real economy and the real economy of their household. Uh, annuities is kind of the flip side of that, because whereas life insurance is concerned with uh, death, uh, annuities is kind of protection against what's called longevity risk. So 
you live a lot longer than you expect, for example. And so that can also help as well. So it helps you um, be able to pay for future expenses. And so you're able to, again, afford those goods that you're going to need in the future and manage your own household and then manage, um, which also is going to support the real economy because you're going to be able to uh, get the goods you need when you need them. So, and then property insurance as well. So you're able to um, have the the wealth and the value that you need to take care of your yourself and your family over over time. So, you know, risk management is another big aspect, not only for uh, business operations, but also just the care of your family and that economy as well. So, but now I kind of want to look. Um, at, at a lot of the problems, or at least some of the problems. So, for example, with some of the risk management stuff, uh, there seem to be kind of, you know, problems around this. So one of the things in insurance is the idea that you should have an insurable risk. And so, for example, you can't take out a life insurance policy on a stranger because there's no insurable risk. You have no dependency on them. Um, you're not going to have to pay for their funeral, you're not dependent on their wages, and so forth. Um, also, um, you know, if someone's making $80,000 a year, it, it's not, it doesn't make sense that you would buy a $10 million life insurance on this person because it's unlikely that, you know, that is so far beyond what you would actually need to cover. And so... Um, along these lines, there can be a lot of uh, financial speculation around the options markets where, you know, options like futures, calls and puts are, are valuable as part of managing a business where you have a real vested interest in those underlying goods. You could potentially just use those to kind of bet on the market and where it's going to go which seems a little contrary to their purpose to me. Then there's, you know, there's all the problems with, um, that we saw with, you know, mortgage-backed securities where their credit ratings were higher than they should have been and the risk wasn't um, properly identified. And so with these complex financial instruments, they can cause um, additional problems as well. Um, so there's other issues we could talk about, uh, you know, meme stocks where, you know, people are coming together to uh, merely drive up the price of a, of a good. Um, and just the way that the system functions, that is something that can happen. Um, and it's not exclusive to stocks. Um, one of the famous examples is the uh, in the Netherlands, there was a tulip, quote, a tulip mania, where the val the cost of, of tulips just skyrocketed um, because everyone was trying to buy the tulips. And it was, um, for a while, it was a very popular, um, popular item and a luxury item, and it just got out of control. So um, there, the point, though, is that um, while bad things can be done and 
are done uh, that do not support the real economy. The financial economy, these type of financial arrangements, whether it's an IPO or you know, some sort of liquidity that's provided to the economy or, or risk management, these can and do support the real economy. And so the financial economy does provide real value uh, for the real economy and the common good, uh, even though um, there are good reasons that the financial economy can have a bad name. And um, a lot of these things, you know, people can make a lot of money uh, off these. So um, I think that's a, a good good place to end. But um, apologize for, for taking a little bit of a break here. Um, I'm going to try to post a, a few more uh, kind of shorter videos in the coming weeks. But if you have any comments, leave them below. Um, and uh, if you're interested in any other kind of topics worth discussing, let me know. And yeah, have a good day.